We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. I'm very grateful to be to be here on this first Sunday of our series. This series feels very, very exciting for me. The series that Awaken was in the middle of when I first became pastor almost four years ago, it's like in a few weeks, was Esther. And, and so Esther obviously like took up major residence in my heart. And Daniel is a story that's meant to be uh, read alongside Esther. And so I feel like I've just got to spend the last few weeks or few months kind of meditating on that sort of circle between Esther and Daniel in my life and the life of our church. So I'm very grateful for this text. I've been reading Daniel every day and just, I don't know, bathing in it or mar- being marinated. I don't know, a metaphor. But anyway, so uh, I, I absolutely love this book because I think a lot of us know half of the book of Daniel very well. We grew up on stories on um, being told by tomatoes and asparaguses about Daniel and the lion's den and uh, you know the fiery furnace, the writing on the wall. Um, there's sort of some classic stories that we learned as kids. But the second half of the book is very peculiar. So there are themes of what it means to be human and and what forces there are at work that are dehumanizing us, that are making us less human. And so there's meant to be this idea of like ancient Babylon, ancient, you know, a a forced assimilation, but then also this sense of AI and the future. And, you know, a lot of us live in uh, baby cries are the most appropriate for this sermon series. So you are most welcome here. Um, As I was about to say, A lot of us live in fear that AI is going to become human, and then we don't realize that the real risk is probably how many of us are just becoming AI, just becoming robotic, who just do what we're told and buy what we're told to buy and feel what we're told to feel, and then be shut off when the programmer says it's time to stop. And so themes of being a human and not being a human will come through in this. And so today's sermon is sort of the introduction to the series to get you um, excited about Daniel excited about what these next uh, couple months will be for us. So let me begin with a little bit of a thing that you need to know about Daniel. So there are 12 chapters in the book of Daniel. The first six chapters are filled with familiar stories we all know. As I said, Daniel in the lion's den, the fiery furnace, the writing on the wall. Essentially, um, a major theme in Daniel is this idea of dreams and visions. Uh, The king in the story has disturbing dreams. Um, And what he does at the beginning of the story is he summons all of the leading astrologers, magicians, and religious men of the world he dominates. um, And he demands that they interpret his dream for him, threatening death to all who are unable. So we have a king who's anxious about the future. And this sets us up for a striking irony, because politically, the king controls the world. He's the king. He's the Babylonian king. He's the king of the empire. And yet at nighttime in his bed, he's tossing and turning and desperate to know what's real. The book of Daniel, therefore, offers us this potent mix of the political and the supernatural. I would say the whole Bible does that, but we'll discover that together. Global superpowers who control the economy and the theology and all these ideas and seemingly the future. And then in Daniel, there are these supernatural dreams and visions filled with rich imagery and symbolism that promise that the king's authoritative view on reality is warped and ultimately fleeting. You should know a few things. Daniel is not a prophet. Never once in the story is he commissioned by God to go and give a message or proclaim a message. In fact, at the end of Daniel 12, he's told to seal up the scroll and not open it until the end of time. He never tells anyone to repent or turn away from their sin. Daniel is a narrative text, as I said before, a lot like Ruth and Esther with parallels to the Joseph narratives in Genesis 
where Pharaoh is having anxious dreams and Joseph is interpreting them for him. The book of Daniel, therefore, is not a warning to God's people. The book of Daniel is intended as a consolation to people who are already suffering. So it's a book of good news. Uh, you won't be surprised to find out over the coming weeks that uh, Daniel is a major source resource for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There, there's a gospel message in Daniel consoling the people of God. This book, this story is written to ancient Israelites who are suffering under political occupation. So the story, the book of Daniel, as we get into it, it's set within the 6th century BCE, during a time when the Babylonian Empire has invaded Israel and they have conquered, conquered the, the nation. The way they did this is by first laying siege to Jerusalem, forcing the people into starvation until they surrendered. And when they did surrender, the Babylonian military moved in, destroyed their temple. They destroy the temple and they do this as a way of asserting that Israel's God had been conquered by Babylon's God. That's how wars worked in the ancient world. Our God's stronger than your God, see? So we must destroy your temple and take the image of your God and we'll put it in our temple so that your God can worship our God forever. So destroying the temple is important. Um, and then after they destroy the temple, they slaughter a third of the population and then they captured the educated, the elite, and many of the children and carried them off to go to sort of uh, state-sponsored uh, schools or courts where they would be forced to assimilate to the empire. The Israelites would have to stop speaking their ancestral language. They would have to stop wearing their traditional clothing, eating their traditional foods, and participating in their sacred ceremonies. They would be given new names and promises of a new life if they peacefully assimilated and pledged allegiance to the new flag. The Babylonian king is a main character in Daniel, but the story takes place over 40 years. So the empire is overturned even within the context of Daniel. So there's a Babylonian king at the beginning and a Persian king near the end. And so Daniel is a very fantastic book. And there's so much for us in this text. Because not only is the story set within the time of the Babylonian Empire, the book of Daniel was written many years later during the time of another empire. So um, Daniel, the book, the actual text, was written a long time after this kind of setting of the Babylonian Empire. So Daniel is one of the last books to be written in the Old Testament and kind of added to that canon, likely near the time of Esther and Ruth. And uh, scholars surmise that this text was written during the reign of the Seleucids. And if you've never heard that word and you don't know a lot about the Seleucids, that's okay. I'm about to tell you very quickly just a little bit about it. It's a big deal. There's two books uh, that some Christians think is scripture and uh, others don't called First and Second Maccabees, which is all about the Seleucids. And it's important whether you, uh, you know, revere Maccabees as scripture or not to know a bit about that context because the Seleucids are a, kind of a big deal between the Persians where the Old Testament ends and the Romans where the New Testament begins. Life under the Seleucids was a very, very difficult time, a time of cultural genocide and great suffering. Here's a text from 1 Maccabees. Antiochus IV, he's the king, fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. And when the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. When Antiochus went up against Israel, he came to Jerusalem with a strong force. He arrogantly entered the sanctuary and took the golden altar and stripped it bare, taking them all. He shed so much blood and spoke with great arrogance. 
Israel mourned deeply in every community. Rulers and elders groaned. Young women and young men became faint. The beauty of the women faded. Every bridegroom took up the lament. She who sat in the bridal chamber was mourning, and even the land trembled for its inhabitants, and all the house of Jacob was clothed with shame. Antiochus plundered the city burned it with fire and tore down its houses and its surrounding walls. They took captive the women and children and seized the livestock. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and all should give up their particular customs. And the king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land. He said, whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. They burned the scrolls of the sacred teachings with fire and anyone found possessing the scrolls of the covenant or adhering to their teaching. They kept using violence against Israel. They put to death the women who had their children circumcised and their families and those who circumcised them. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. That's the beginning of the story. And it's during this time when the book of, of Daniel was likely written. And so it is a profound story. These scriptures are intended to console the people who are suffering under occupation and forced assimilation. And so as I've been preparing this and reading about this and like researching about the background and noticing the way like Daniel's given a new name, he's not allowed to say his prayers. He's not allowed to eat the food of his tradition. It has sort of caused me to kind of wrestle with my own context as a Canadian reckoning with the doctrine of discovery, the Indian Act, ongoing cultural genocide against human beings who are indigenous to this particular land. Because I see a lot of similarities in the story, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, they all believed that their gods had chosen them to spread their good news to all the peoples of the earth. They believed that they were God's special agents sent to civilize the savage natives by showing them that their way of living was illegitimate and bad. They believed that this was what it meant to love the indigenous people, they loved them by telling them what to do and who to be and how to dress and how to speak properly. They thought that they had the truth about salvation, the only truth, and so they forced it upon their subjects and felt righteous in doing so. In fact, John A. MacDonald, <laughs> this is going to be very profound when we get to the Gospel of Mark in a moment, but we're getting into the reality that the book of Daniel is very political um, and yet filled with poetry um, and, 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 and miracles and, and, and supernatural presence. John A. MacDonald, along the same lines as Antiochus IV or King Nebuchadnezzar or King Napopolazar, as we will see in this story. Um, he said in, in 1887, when the school, he's talking about um, residential schools. He said, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence. And the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes of thought of white men. And lastly, in this other quote, which was, he spoke the same year that Treaty 7 was signed in 1887. He said, the great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate the Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the dominion as speedily as they are fit to change. The Babylonians believed they were superior people. And how could they not? They had successfully conquered the world and it was going well for them. It's hard to imagine change or imagine the legitimacy of voices asking for change when it's going well for you. The book of Daniel kind of summons us 
to see the gospel message uh, through the lens of its rightful owners, those on the margins, the occupied, people who are being forced to fit into a tiny box that someone else has said, this is the true box. And it's hard. It's a hard text to read because I notice that if life is comfortable, I like to spend most of my time and energy conserving it <laughs> as it is, imagining it could be timeless and like, this is it, I've arrived, this is the good life. And then I'm suspect of people that I hear about who are crying out for change. And I, I think that it gets extra difficult when you imagine that your life is going well because it's your reward for worshiping God correctly. And so, of course, it's hard to sort of know what's real, what's reality like. Is my life like this because I'm blessed or is my life like this because someone else's life has been cursed? and to wrestle with that. And so there's this kind of beautiful thing. Um, I can't wait to get into it. There's something that happens in Daniel that we, that we lose when we just read it in English, where the language changes in the text. So it's in Hebrew from chapters one until partway into chapter two, then it switches to Aramaic, which was the language of the colonizer that everyone was forced to speak. So in Daniel 2.4, there's a line that says, and then the astrologers responded to him in Aramaic, and then boom, the whole thing's in, Hebrew, in, in Aramaic. So imagine being like a child listening to that. It's like, oh yeah, for, uh, like imagine it's being spoken in Blackfoot and you're a Blackfoot child, uh, a Blackfoot person who survived residential school and the story's being told to you in Blackfoot and you're trying to remember the words of your ancestral language, and then all of a sudden, part with you the story, the speaker switches to English, and you have to wrestle with why that feels better. And then um, at the very beginning of chapter 8, it goes back to Hebrew. So there's so many layers in Daniel that's playing with these themes of what, which language is good. The book of Daniel, so it kind of begins with these fantastic stories, but it ends with a very unique and on what I'm going to call freaky kind of writing which is uh, called apocalyptic literature. Ooh, it's a big word. It's scary. Um, we don't really talk about it as a church unless there's a U.S. election. And then we're very aware of what the book of Revelation says about the moon. And, you know, we become aware, but then it disappears again. So there's a little preemptive apocalypse training before primaries in the South. The apocalyptic uh, type of writing is a genre of literature that was really popular um, actually during the time of Antiochus IV until about 100 years after Jesus. Really popular. There's lots of apocalyptic writing out there. Revelation, Daniel, um, other books. Uh, and apocalypse, uh, or apocalypse, really, the word means unveil, or to unveil, or reveal. So revelation, the book of revealing. And you're unveiling or revealing the truth that the empire has tried to conceal. The truth about how fleeting the human life is, how temporary uh, human power systems are, and how pathetic and weak the attempts of men, the attempts of rulers are to control the world, predict the future and define what it is to be human. In the book of Psalms chapter 2, it says the kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together, but he who sits in the heavens laughs. In Daniel 7 to 12, there are these visions, you see, this is a big deal. There are all these visions of these like hybrid animals or hybrid beasts um, and they're arising out of the sea. There's this character called a son of man who rides on clouds into the presence of someone called the Ancient of Days. They talk about time in strange ways. There's archangels. Um, and they talk about the future uh, in terms of like, there's going to be a time and half time. Um, and so it sounds almost like it's being written in code, uh, which makes me think of Paul and Eric. <laughs> um, apocalyptic writing is essentially like a secret code that the marginalized would use to critique and resist the dominating worldview. And they would speak in this code to remind each other that the empire doesn't get to define reality and that it's the slain land and the God who is love who gets the final say. 
In Daniel 10, verses 5 to 6, just to give you an example of this kind of apocalyptic language that tries to like unsettle our sense of what's real and who gets to define what's real, the text says that there is going to be, a, a, depending on your translation, a star person or a celestial being with a belt of fine gold and a body like topaz and a face like lightning, eyes like a torch and a voice like the sound of multitudes. As if to laugh in the face of the king or the prime minister and say, you know nothing, Jon Snow. Can I do a game? I don't know. You don't know anything. And you do not get to determine reality and you do not get to prescribe humanity. When you picture King Nebuchadnezzar warm and cozy in his jammies at night having nightmares, then you picture this celestial being whose voice sounds like multitudes. You start to wake up from the dream of who has power that matters. So the book of Daniel, you'll love this. In, in the book of Daniel, Daniel is never spoken to directly by God. He only has dreams and visions, which would be unsettling, wouldn't it? You're desperate for a word from God. You have a really weird dream. Is that it? Or was it a weird dream? It's a play. It's like, that's not reality. That's just a dream. So the Holy Spirit disrupts this sense of what's real and whose reality we should submit to and abide by. And so uh, it's not spoken direct, or, or God doesn't speak to him plainly and directly like you imagine God did in like Isaiah. He speaks through dreams and visions. And then he's told not to tell anyone. Um, in Daniel 12, 4, it says, roll up the scroll, seal it until the time of the end. It's not a message meant to be shared around the globe. It's a secret message meant for those who are suffering, those who are holding on desperately to these last shards of, of their prophecies and their dreams for the future. It's a secret message meant for those waiting to hear that there is a creator who knows their name, who can look down and laugh at the attempts of people to rise up on the heights and achieve immortality. Because the creator, in the, and this is the, the paradox that's introduced in the book of Daniel, the creator is not only the true God, the one true God, but also the one true human, which is the paradox of the Christian faith. God is the incarnate human one. And the word for that is son of man, the incarnate human one, the one who doesn't resist the cries of those on the margins. It's not the king. He can resist them all day. The enslaved Hebrews cried out for hundreds of years, and the Pharaoh king had ears but did not hear. But when the burning bush uh, uh, speaks to Moses, he says, I have heard the cries. And that the paradox of our faith, the human God, is this idea that our God is the one who does not resist the cries of those on the margins. Our God can be found at the protest. Our God is the one to whom all authority belongs, the only one who is truly trustworthy. And in the story, as, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell it, our God is not the Indian agent at the front of the line, prepared to cut hair and give you a new name. Jesus reveals a God who is more like the little indigenous boy, Chani Wenjak, whose body was found frozen on the tracks between the residential school and his home 600 miles away after trying to escape residential school. He's that little boy whose frozen body was discovered by the train conductor, which launched, launched the first national inquiry into the morality of residential schools, which eventually led to the closure of all of them in 1996. As if to say, in this way, the death of Jesus could lead to the liberation of those who are trapped in the schools. In the grip of capital S sin, 
with short hair and broken English and prayers forced upon them that they recite in fear and hopes that numbing obedience might allow them a chance to see their mom and dad again. So the main theme in Daniel is surprisingly not how to be like God, but how to become human again against the forces that try to dehumanize us. The empire tries to assimilate Daniel and his friends, but as the power corrupts him, this is my favorite part in Daniel, um, as the power of the king corrupts him, he actually becomes less and less human. And even in chapter four of Daniel, the king becomes like a beast with talons and feathers who walks on all fours and eats grass like a wild animal. As if to say the ones forcing a certain narrow brand of humanity onto others is the least human of all. The one who is dehumanizing his subjects cannot be the one who defines what it is to be human. All humans, we believe in our faith, were made in the image of God, not the image of Caesar or the image of Pharaoh or the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so when a king makes an image of himself uh, and demands that you bow down and worship it, he is essentially saying that he is the perfect human and everyone ought to be like him. But the thing is, the secret we know, the way the book of Daniel is winking at us, even now in Calgary in 2023, is that God made an image of himself. And God did command us to tenderly love that image. And that image is you and I. In 1 John, that's the next slide, it says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God, but the image of God is looking back at you in the mirror. And if we could love our neighbor as we love ourselves, the love of God is within us, living within us. And so as I come to uh, draw us to the communion table, I think this is a really important place to linger this idea of God's image especially um, in relation to the, the psalm that Logan and Dion played at the beginning of the set, the call to worship, because humans have a big seeing problem. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, young Isaiah is commissioned by God to go and speak to his own people who have ears but do not hear, have eyes but do not see, have hearts but do not comprehend. The, and, and the idea uh, uh, rippling uh, past that throughout the rest of Isaiah is that humans have hearts made of stone. Hearts made of stone. Pharaoh is told, oh, we're told the Pharaoh is hard-hearted in Exodus because a heart of stone can't cry anymore. A heart of stone can't be vulnerable anymore and say, I need help. And so this heart of stone, um, the psalmist tells us in 115, as you remember, is you get a heart of stone because you become like that which you trust. You become like what you worship. You become like what you invest your time and energy into. You become like what you think brings you security and success. So if we were made in the image of the living God, of the God who has ears that hear and a heart that breaks, a mouth that speaks, and a word that becomes flesh and walks with among us, we worship a God who does not have a heart of stone like the gods we tend to worship, gods like military alliances and pension plans and the stock market. We become like the false gods who appear powerful, though they are incompetent and indifferent. Though we see pain, we often turn our face away in indifference. And though we hear stories of injustice, we say there's nothing we can do admitting our own incompetence like that which we have put our trust in. We have revealed that humans have a heart problem. And what I think is so profound, which leads us to the communion table, is in Ezekiel 36, the Spirit speaks to the prophet 
and makes this promise. He says, in that day, I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from your idols. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove from your body the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And the spirit breathes life until that stony clay heart becomes warm and starts to beat and recognize itself when he looks in the eyes of the other. And so this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The, uh, the work of removing these hearts of stone to return us to our true image, the image of the crucified God, the virgin son of Mary, the slain lamb, the king of the Jews, and the son of man, which leads me to this uh, profound kind of gospel moment um, that Daniel the title Son of Man is Jesus' favorite name for himself in Mark's gospel, which is a phrase that comes from Daniel. And Son of Man means like true human, the human one, the son of Adam, the one who actually bears the image of God, the one who actually has eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is soft. And so the example of this in Luke chapter seven, um, a sinful woman, allegedly, that everyone just does, you know, they don't see her is weeping at Jesus's feet. And it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what this kind of woman is. She doesn't fit in the box, you see. She, he would know who's touching him. She is a sinner. So Jesus spoke up and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which one will love him more? Simon said, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said, Simon, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? You have eyes, but I don't think you've ever seen her before. I don't think you've ever noticed her before. This real living human being with a whole biography, a living history, just walked in here. And she is doing something that shows us one thing, we don't even know her name, but I'll tell you what we know. Her heart is soft as putty as she washes his feet with her tears. Do you see this woman? And we identify the problem is how many times do I fail to see the woman, to see my neighbor, to see that indigenous person, to see a new immigrant, um, to see a refugee on the news, um, to see someone who doesn't fit the box the same way I do. Says, do you see this woman? In Luke's gospel, Jesus cries out from the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they're doing, because he sees them. He knows they have no idea what's happening or why they're torturing an innocent man. The Roman soldiers have been convinced by an evil colonizing force that Jesus is a political opponent to Rome because he's prescribing a different way of being human and loving humans. A way of being human that looks like joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness. And Jesus knows it's not their fault, and he can see and he can love the real people behind the uniform and the flag. Paul too experiences this when we're told in Acts 9 that something like scales fell from his eyes. And then the people that he was persecuting, he could suddenly see them. So uh, in conclusion, I will read this text from Daniel, and hopefully um, you will see the dream of these coming months we have together as a church, this dream of being made new again, and we'll see the communion table and how it invites us to that. So in Daniel 7, it says, Daniel saw in a vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, 
different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human. He's like, see this king? He thinks he's a human. He's not. He's pretending. He's performing a brand of humanity. He's like AI. He's been programmed like a human being and a human mind was given to it. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. Oh, there's a horn on this character. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, these are the four kingdoms, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. The hero in the story is not a king and he's not a beast. He's the human. And so um, pray with me and then uh, we can uh, conclude our ceremony at the table. Uh, we pray to the ancient of days, to the lamb who was slain, to the Messiah that weeps and feels and can be moved with compassion. I pray that you would remove from us our heart of stone, the part of us that wants to see labels instead of image bearers, that wants to categorize people and map them in terms of whether we should respect them or not, or whether we should give help or not, or acknowledge that they might be a gift to us or not. And I pray that as this text uh, unravels us this fall, O oh God, that you would then weave us together again as a people with eyes who see each other and hearts that genuinely notice each other and are concerned for one another. And as we come to love one another and see the living God, the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days in our midst, I pray that shalom would flow from this place like a river in Boness. Thank you for what you are doing, for what you have been doing and what you will be doing. Uh, open us again, I pray, to the heart that you've poured out for us on the cross. We pray in the name of our risen Jesus. Amen. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighborhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and the Canadian government. We honour that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Bonus.